what am I supposed to do about the fact that some of the stuff in my phone is coming from China or from the Congo? What can I do if there's not recycling technology available yet for some of these rare earths and other critical materials? What am I supposed to do? Well, I should still recycle. I should still be thinking about consciously and mindfully about what I buy or don't buy. But I think also as a consumer, one thing we can do is use what we have as long as possible. That's probably the biggest thing. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for The Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. Most of us are currently carrying around a host of materials in our pockets. Materials mostly unknown to us. Some of those materials are crucial to the design and functioning of our electronic devices. They have been labelled critical raw materials. But what does this really mean? And where do they come from? The conversation about conflict minerals coming from Central Africa has created great interest in critical raw materials. But that discussion is only covering one small part of a much bigger story. My name is Jessica Richter and I'm a PhD researcher at Lund University at a department called the International Institute for Industrial Environmental Economics, which is a mouthful. What we mainly deal with is environmental management and policy on different levels from individual consumption to cities and businesses and then on the on a policy level and national and international policy. So my work is mostly between policy and business with circular economy and looking at electronics and the different circular economy policies and issues related to electronics. So that's where uh, electronics repair comes in. Today on Restart Radio, we interview researcher Jessica Luth Richter, who works with Restart and a consortia of universities on a project called Refer, which is designed to raise awareness about these critical raw materials. Jessica takes us through the global supply of materials in our electronics, the social and environmental aspects of their mining, and how infrequently we actually end up recycling them. It's interesting, complicated, and a little bit troubling to discover that some of the same materials currently in demand for use in our new electronics are also the materials that we need to expand the production of renewable energy. So what are CRMs? CRMs are critical raw materials. And sometimes like I have a, a geology background as well as a, as a legal background. And some people think that it's a geology term, like critical raw materials, that they're rare from a geological perspective. But actually the concept is, is more of a political one. So we started seeing the term critical raw materials specifically around the 1930s and 40s in the US. And a lot of that had to do with resource dependency and national security. And this link between the two is where we get this, this concept. So it's very much in the eye of the beholder as to what 
what is considered a critical raw material. And we first started seeing the concept when it was nations looking at what is their economy and their defense dependent on from a resource point of view. So that's what they what they are basically. But what we see now is is lists coming out from organizations and from bodies like the EU and the US government. These lists are using stakeholder perspectives to construct where there are supply risks and which materials have economic importance that are worth preserving or looking at the, the supply chain and seeing if there are any issues that might disrupt the supply and then affect the economy or the security of the country. So that's really the, the two matrices that are used to define criticality are the economic importance and the supply risk. And so that's where we get this term that we use now, criticality. Criticality is quite an unfamiliar word. It's good to kind of have some context around that. Can you walk us through what CRMs are contained in those smartphones? Where are they likely to come from? And also what other devices are they in as well as smartphones? Because we can sometimes be a bit too smartphone centric in in the world. And there's loads of other devices we're using that we don't think about as much. So like in the screen, we have the indium tin oxide which is helping to make a touch screen. So anything with a touch screen is going to be using indium and tin, which are critical materials. Other places where you can find it also in the screen are rare earth elements again. And the thing with with certain rare earth elements like yttrium, europium, terbium, is that they will help make the screen bright and these in these colors. And these colors are also important for other applications like your TV. Then to make a a smartphone mobile and to make anything mobile, you need batteries and you'll find critical materials in the batteries. We maybe have heard about cobalt and cobalt mining as well. So cobalt is in batteries. We hear about lithium a lot, but it's actually not on the EU list. It's on the US list for critical materials. So again, it depends on what the actual supply risks and where different regions are getting the lithium and what they're using it for as to whether they see it as a critical material, but lithium is in the batteries. Cobalt can be in the batteries as well. And cobalt, generally, we're looking at it's coming from the the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the rare earths I already mentioned, but the rare earths that I talked about in the screen are coming from China, generally. In the electronics, we have lots of different critical materials as well. So in some of the wiring and components, like the microcapacitors, you have tantalum, which is generally coming from... Rwanda and surrounding countries. In the microphone, you have some more of the rare earths as well. And in the vibrator, anything that has a vibrating system also has some tungsten, which is a a critical material. And tungsten generally is coming from China, but also from Russia. And then in in the chips, the electronic chips, and this is for Basically anything with chips, you can have uh, silicon metal, phosphorus, gallium, and antimony all coming from China generally as well. So you're seeing a recurring theme to where things are coming from in terms of critical materials. And even the casing of a phone, you might see magnesium, which can also be a critical material in the list and also mainly from China. What are rare earth minerals and what is their relationship with uh, CRM? So rare earth minerals or rare earth elements are on both the lists from the US government and from the EU. And I should mention also those lists differ. So there's 27 materials currently on the list for the EU and 35 on the list for the US. So that very much is in the eye of the beholder again as to what 
is critical to which countries. It makes a difference what their supply chains are and what they're using the materials for. But rare earth minerals, we, we hear about them a lot because they are critical materials. And they refer to a, a group of 17 elements, actually, that are found together, which is why we usually refer to them as a group of this rare earth elements. And they have material properties that are similar to each other, yet they're used in distinct ways. One rare earth is not substitutable for another rare earth. But they're also used in a lot of electronics and other equipment that we use in our daily lives, like our smartphones, our cars, in magnets, in renewable energy. And they're very important to these technologies, to these newer technologies. And they're minerals that we've only really just started using in a big way. They, they weren't used let's say 50 years ago, as widespread as they are now. So that also means that their supply chains are relatively new and still changing. And when they came on the agenda in a big way was also in 2010, when there was a geopolitical dispute between China and Japan, and China threatened to stop their supply of rare earths. And then it became clear that actually most rare earths come from China. So that was, again, highlighting then this, this idea of criticality, that there's a supply risk that there was a disruption to the supply when indeed China did lower its quota on exports of rare earths, which caused the price to spike. And then there was a lot of concern from companies and from policymakers because these rare earths are used in things like renewables or electronics. Okay, how do we get these rare earths? Can we get them from elsewhere? How critical are they? How rare are they? What came out of this as well is that they're actually not rare. They occur in many deposits around the world. What's rare is the processing and, and expertise needed to separate rare earths when there's 17 of them, not always occurring all 17, but many of them occurring together. You have to separate them from each other. And this involves usually uh, some heavy acids in that step of processing and, and expertise on how to do that. And that isn't done everywhere in the world. And there's a reason why most of it's done in China. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's a, lo a lot to think about in, in inside the thing. I mean, I'm literally looking at a phone to read these questions off, and now I'm and now I'm looking at it in a very different way. What are the environmental and social impacts of mining CRMs? I mean, in some ways, mining CRMs, the the environmental and social impacts are are the same as mining anything. If you don't have good governance, if you don't have environmental management, you will have risks no matter what you're mining. So that's that's the first thing that in in some ways it's not what is being mined, the fact that it's a critical material, but rather that it is mining happening without governance in some cases. That said, <laughs> there are some specific materials that are always worse to mine. We know that, that uranium is associated with more risks than gravel, let's say. Let's take rare earths again as an example. Rare earths are often associated with radioactive materials like uranium. So then you're going to have these risks. Also, when you're, when you're mining them, they involve steps of processing where you have to separate rare earths from each other. And generally, this involves the use of acids that then need to be managed because you're going to have acid as your runoff. And there you have a risk of groundwater and, and different contamination of the soil as well. So yeah, when, when you have rare earths that involve strong acids and leaching techniques, and particularly if it's an illegal mining activity, generally that's the problem with it is that they're using leaching maybe directly into the ground or they're not managing the waste 
in any way. And that's where you get the environmental concerns about it. Why don't we do the mining in the EU? Why is Europe so concerned with CRM and, and yet that we're not mining in the EU much? Okay, yeah, much is the, is the first thing because we do, we do mine in the EU, but we don't mine all of the critical materials and we don't mine all of the critical materials that are in known reserves in the EU. And there's, there's different reasons for that because we, we've been talking a lot about rare earths. I'll keep using them as an example throughout. So in Sweden, we have, we have rare earth deposits. In fact, that's where rare earths were first discovered and why they have their names. They were discovered in the late 1700s in a town called Itteby and they all have names around Swedish, Swedish names or Europium around Europe. There isn't that drive. There isn't the price is there to make these mining projects go over the line in terms of needing to meet environmental strict environmental management in the EU and still being able to be profitable in selling the materials that they're extracting on the market because they're competing against Chinese materials that may not have as much environmental management legislation around it, or they may have some illegal mining that is supplying the market as well. So we still have this deposit there, and we have other deposits through Sweden, and some of them have been explored, and some of them are known to be pretty good deposits with low radioactive materials, so lower risk than some of the other deposits around the world. And it went as far when the price of rare earths were very high between 2011 and 2013. It went as far as there was a lot of interest and the company that was looking at mining, a Canadian company, had actually put in for starting to extract rare earths in Sweden. Their application was rejected around the environmental management, so they're still looking at how they can do the environmental management better, and there was a lot of protests around it here in Sweden as well. And some of the protesters were saying that rare earths can't be mined in an environmentally friendly way or without environmental impact. That can be debated if there's a way that we can mine these materials without environmental impact. There will always be some environmental impact through mining. I mean, you're taking things out of the ground, you're displacing materials. Is this worth what we're getting out of it as well? And at this point, when we can buy it cheaper, when those producers that need these rare earths can, can buy it cheaply from China. So this is one reason why we don't see more mining in the EU. But we do see a lot of interest since we saw spikes in materials in 2010, 2012. But that interest has even waned a little as the prices have come down again. So we see this, this interest ebbing and flowing, but it is tied to the economics. And I think what we need to see more of is it tied to policy objectives. Do we want to be self-sufficient on some metals? And can we be self-sufficient is the other question, because some of the demand outweighs what could be supplied from Europe as well. So there may always need to be supply chains, global supply chains. And how many of the critical rare earth materials are also conflict minerals? It depends on whether you're going with the US list or an EU list, um, because they have different materials on the critical materials list. But let's start with what the conflict materials generally are. Usually it's the 3TG, which is tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold. Tungsten you usually find on both criticality lists. Interesting, you might think, okay, it's a conflict mineral. It's on the criticality list because if it's in from a conflict zone, there's obviously a supply risk. But when you look at the matrix of economic importance versus supply risk, tungsten is usually on there because of its economic importance more than the supply disruption expected. Yes, there there is some supply disruption risk with conflict, but that's actually less than the importance of tungsten for certain end-use products. So it's on there because it's an important to the economy more so than the conflict. That's the reason why we don't see others like tin and tantalum also on the list, and gold 
even though it's a conflict material, isn't on the list for criticality on either the US or the EU list. Again, that comes down to what is considered a supply disruption. Is there other sources of gold? And yes, there are other sources of gold beyond a conflict region. So even though it's a conflict mineral, and it's associated in many places where it is mined with conflicts, it is not a critical material because it is not seen as, as something that can't be substituted or can't be found elsewhere. Right, yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So moving on to recycling and design, how good is the recycling rate of these materials and what are the implications of that? When you consider that these are critical materials and that we're talking about uh, supply may be disrupted and it's hard to get supply from elsewhere, it probably comes as no surprise that there is little recycling of a lot of these materials. I mean, there's a couple that have high recycling rates. It, tungsten, cobalt can have high recycling rates. But even then, others like platinum group metals also have pretty high recycling rates. But even though they recycle at a high level, their demand for them is growing at such a high level, the recycling is unable to meet demand. So there's still a need at the moment for primary supply from those. But tungsten and cobalt are actually being recycled and supplied to the EU, where, where the EU is actually getting a significant amount of its supply from recycled tungsten and cobalt. But I mean, these are just a couple of the 27 materials. The rest of the materials, if you take rare earths, they're not being recycled at a significant rate and they're not being used for the supply then at a, or not influencing the supply of these to meet demand. There's different reasons for why the recycling rate is so low. There's several issues to it. One is that a lot of these materials, when I went through the materials in a smartphone, they're in different parts of the smartphone in very small amounts. So we have very small amounts of rare earth in the screens. We have very small amount of rare earths in different parts. What happens when we're, when we're recycling is often we're recycling in a way that we are trying to make it convenient. So we're recycling lots of different electronics together. And the recycling process is what they generally do at the moment, at least in the EU, is shredding as a first step just to get some kind of materials in there and start separating out the metals. And what we've been good at recycling in the past are things like gold, things like aluminium, and we know how to recycle those, we know how to get those out. And that's still what we're, what we're going for and what we know has value. So that's still what recycling processes are tuned for. The problem is when we, when we take lots of things, mix them together, and then shred them, what we're doing is, is taking all those rare earths that are in different places, mixing them even more in one step, and then shredding and dissipating them over our entire stock there. So we're losing these rare earths and other critical materials in that step. Right, right, absolutely. Well, you mentioned new technologies that can help to change the way that the CRMs are recycled and stuff. I guess also can can change the demand for CRMs. Can you talk a little bit about what those technologies look like? Yeah, I mean, we have technologies. We're, we're still developing technologies for the actual recycling of things. But the demand of new technologies for these critical materials, that's actually a big challenge as well, because it's hard to predict how much we're going to need as these materials are really part of, of new innovative technologies that are hard to see which ones are coming. So from a recycling point of view, it's hard to know if there's going to be demand for what if you go for setting up a process, you use a new technology, let's say to extract 
europium from light bulbs, which is a, a true example. So they, they had a technology, they had a process for getting this europium back out of the light bulbs and, and could go back into screens or, or light bulbs again. But what happened is we had also a change in lighting technologies. We went from fluorescent lighting to LED lighting in that same time. LED lighting has much less demand for europium and for rare earths in general. So what we saw was a drop in the demand. So even though we have a technology that could now recycle it to put it back in light bulbs, light bulb technology had changed and no longer needed as much europium. So we saw it even now, some lighting designers are saying, well, it's not a critical material in our eyes because there's so little demand for it. There's actually more supply, so it's, it's not a problem anymore. But who knows what the next technology is going to say, okay, europium, it's cheap, let's design with it. Then there creates another demand. So there's this balance problem, this up and down to what is in demand and what is in supply at any time that makes this development of new technologies also hard to, to react and hard to predict. Right. And talking about demand, I mean, what is the demand of CRM for renewable energy? Uh, renewable energies, let's take wind turbines, for example. There's magnets in the wind turbines that use neodymium, a rare earth. In solar panels, we also have some critical materials as well. So there is a large demand. And how large that demand is depends on what kind of scenarios you're using for renewable energy. So I've seen some studies that are using the different IPCC reports for looking at, okay, what is the demand for these critical materials from renewable energy? And it's quite a lot. And it depends whether energy efficiency, how much that is considered in these different scenarios. But either way, there's going to be a large need for these critical materials to support a transition to renewable energy. And what is the rebound effect? So the rebound effect, often we, we're talking efficiency. Okay, so what, what we save when we are being more efficient, we end up using in some other way or consuming more is what simply the, the rebound effect is. So often we see it referring to energy efficiency. And so I could be talking on an individual level, like I put LEDs in my, in my house and switch out all my lights to LEDs. So I save electricity and greenhouse gases. But if I then end up installing more LEDs because now I can light more places like my garden that I didn't light before or things like this because it's cheap and I and I overcompensate. That's my rebound effect. Another type of rebound effect is the indirect effect where I could not put more lights in, but I use the money I save now from my energy costs. And instead I, I save that money and I, I go to Thailand for a vacation. So that's uh, the lights for flights, we call it sometimes in energy efficiency. Right. It's always about balance, isn't it? And it's like often we're only looking at one thing and we're not kind of connecting it up with the kind of more complex systems around things. Speaking of the systems and the individuals within it, what is the role of the consumer in a more responsible use of CRM? Yeah, for the consumer, what we've been talking about is is quite mind-boggling, isn't it? What am I supposed to do about the fact that some of the stuff on my phone is coming from China or from the Congo? And what, what can I do if there's not recycling technology available yet for some of the uh, rare earths and other critical materials. What am I supposed to do? Well, I should still recycle. I should still be thinking about consciously and mindfully about what I buy or don't buy. But I think also as a consumer, one thing we can do is use what we have as long as possible. That's probably the biggest thing we can do because then we're, we're trying to slow the consumption of these materials and trying to keep them useful for as long as possible. And that does two things. It both slows the demand 
for the materials, but it also gives more time to develop those recycling technologies the longer we can keep things in the loop and in use. So I think that's, that's where ideas of, of buying for longer life and repairing what we have and taking care of and maintenance come in. And are there materials that we will simply run out of in terms of the reserves that we hold of them? Physically run out, I would say no, not in any uh, medium to long term. What we see, if you take the case of fossil fuels, we see that this idea of running out takes a long time. <laughs> One thing is that we have, you know, a lot of these running out projections are based on, on reserves. And reserves are what we know can be extracted with reasonable technology and current economic projections, what we know could be economical according to, to our projections. But when we start running out, these parameters start to change. So we start to see supply disruptions, price spikes, and shortages. And we react to those. Producers react to them, countries react to them, and we react to them in different ways. We look for substitutes. We look for other sources. So then what, what has just been a deposit might become now a reserve. But one unconventional source that we have for many of these materials is recycling. So I hope if we combine these reactions along with a plan and some strategies, we can be smart about it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, find it wherever it is, but rather let's plan on finding it in ways that, that also help solve other problems and help us moving towards circular economy and a green economy rather than just reacting and trying to find other minds before we're looking for other minds, be looking at the mines in our own products. And we even see now urban mining of landfills being looked at seriously and, and development of technology for that. So we, who knows, in 30 years, we might be mining our landfills, but hopefully we'll also be having more loops and technologies for the recycling and for repairing and for being smarter with even how these loops are running with our, with our materials and products. My dad used to work making documentary films for the coal board and he went down in the coal mines across the UK and across America to film the processes that happened in coal mining back in the day. So mining and materials have always been very real things to me, things that are very much part of communities and societies and intricately linked in people's everyday life. Since those coal mines have shut down in the UK, we've mostly stopped having mining happening in this country. And so possibly we've stopped thinking about the human involvement in mining and the material realities of mining and what it means. We're currently using technology that is only possible through industries that we never see and through the labour of people who we never meet. The sounds that you've heard during this episode are from the BBC Sound Effects Library. They are the sounds of British mining from the time that my dad would have been going down the mines. And those sounds are a way of reminding us that we are connected to the industry that creates the world around us. We aren't separate from that. And since it does feel for many of us that we are disconnected, from these things. We need to change that because changing our relationship to how we understand what we use will also help us to understand how we can make a future that is better for everybody who uses technology, including the people far away doing the work that we no longer remember is happening. 
So what is it that makes these materials critical? That we don't mine them here in Europe or in the UK? And that they're essential to the electronics that we all use every day? Electronics are made up of materials taken out of somebody else's land and assembled far away from where they were found. Opening up our electronics, getting hands-on and familiar with the components and elements inside them is just one first step towards a deeper understanding of their origins, their cost and their true value. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at therestartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And thanks to Restart's communication intern Isabel, who did the research and episode planning for this episode. It's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody. 